0: Unusual suspects with Owen Brennan, a Go Light original. Go out, go
1: out, go out. It's a fucking penitentiary.
2: I mean, what can you say about it? You know I me, mean? but I was lucky because Irish Americans are everywhere. I was taking care of Betty Hales' the the angels. I never got punched once. Never got any kind of hassle in America. And I was just lucky. A couple of guys are from Ireland who were over there, and so sort of grouped us all together. A couple of guys there and for making missiles for the ARA, a couple of scientists work for NASA. And another guy, I don't want to his name, Houston Dire, and sort of grouped the six of us together, you know. So I got special I wouldn't say special table, but we we're left alone, like, you know what I mean? Like sort of thing, you know. But uh the yeah, Panatas is quite a rough place, you know. I wouldn't recommend breaking a law in America. That's my only advice anybody's listening to me, do you not break the law in America. It's not a nice place, you know, is not there to help in any sense of form or word, you know.
0: For Father Pat, prison was a sad but typically interesting experience.
1: When I found myself in the prison, I figured it was the hand of God in some way or other. And I've always wanted to be a hermit or a monk. And I figured I could be alone in a crowd. And I said to myself, Lord, I always wanted to be a monk. I always wanted solitude. Okay, I always wanted a monk cell. You didn't, you didn't. Maybe you're a little deaf lord. You can be a prison cell. Fine. So I had my little altar in there. I had my briefcase, my books. They knew I was coming before I arrived. There was a big reception waiting for me when I got out there. And was—we were in the dorm for the first part. To my right was a federal judge. To my left was the head, the capi, the the capi, the head of the mafia from Chicago. And all over the place, there was people. And right away, it was all—I became a Father Pat to them. And I was able to fraternize with everybody from Mur- Murder Incorporated and mafiosas to the Mar- Ronda King of America and to every fraudster, gangster, con artist you might have ever met from across the U.S. It was a fabulous experience and it helped me beyond you could, what you could imagine to more understand people when I came out again. One half thought it was a Robin Hood robber robbing for the poor. The other thought I was a rebel and doing it for a cause. So I had the best of both worlds. And it was a, an isolated, sad time separated from my community. Stone walls do not a prison make, no iron bars or cage. They've only got my body here. I used to pull fast ones. And one time a cop came into me. I'm lying in my bed, meditating, and he taps. Maloney, I thought you were dead. It be Maloney. My God, I couldn't wake you up. Oh, no, no, I said, uh, that was my body was there. What do you mean your body? Oh, I said, I, I took an astral trip. I decided to go home and see my people. You freaked him out. So I decided, you have to laugh your way through it, keep up your spirit, and realize the hand of God is there for some particular reason. I got an insight on into the inner workings I was in the belly of the beast, like Jonah was in the whale. I saw the best and the worst of American criminology.
0: Fitting the life of Father Patrick Maloney into a series like this is difficult. There's a lot more to tell than I can ever get across in the time we have. One of those things I haven't mentioned until now is that Pat had an adopted son, Jason. Jason was born and spent his early years in a very tough neighbourhood, the South Bronx and when his mother was dying from cancer she asked Father Pat if he would adopt her son and take him into his home Pat did that and he raised Jason at Benita's house
1: I was in prison, it was in July 27th and I got a call from the so-called counsellor, guard, nice enough guy he called me up to the room and he said I'm going to place we have something to tell you we have a phone call from you, and it was my attorney, Bill Couse. So Bill uh, says to me, Father Pat, your son. Jason had a girlfriend in the Bronx. This was after I was gone. And he had a very lovely, he was very successful in He's worked in the carpenters' union for a number of years. A famous Irishman from Sligo got him his first job. He went to the College of Carpentry, saved, moved on to Florida, had a little cognizance going, hard-working, decent kid. So Jason was, um, he parked his car up near his aunt's building in the Bronx. Meantime, he'd gone upstairs to visit his girlfriend's apartment, checking out something for him. The story I got at the time was he surprised burglars in the apartment. They shot him in the chest. There seemed to have been a struggle. They didn't kill him immediately, and when they he was found, they set the place on fire and put him on a couch. Unsolved murder. Never, they never could, they never found out what happened. I don't know if we'll ever know what happened. Now the big thing was my caseworker. Now this is remarkable, Dennis Miller. One Miller puts me in jail; the other Miller is doing something else. Imagine. So anyway. Milak comes in and says, said, Well, Maloney, fill out this paper. It's a requisition that you get permission to go back, to go to the funeral of your son. Of course, you know, there'll be two guards going with you. We have, So one of my mafia friends called, said, well, bad. We'll, we'll have a mass. Forget it, he said. They're tying with you. They're tying with your mind. Don't let them do it. Rise above it. Refuse. Or he said the best he said fill it out but don't expect anything so here's what happened I filled out a requisition the most vicious and cruel thing ever happened this was New York 1993 this neighborhood had immensely improved there were no gangs no trouble of any kind down here so they went the first they went to the prosecutor and the federal court probation officer who'd handle my case pre-trial They wrote town either through ignorance or willful falsehood. And I can't imagine how as informed and educated people could have been ignorant, said, Oh, it would be dangerous to let Maloney, his case is so high profile, to go into New York City. It's a gang territory in Hell's Kitchen. And it wouldn't be safe for our officers. Hell's Kitchen has been gone off the map for 50, 60, 70 years. Hell's Kitchen was over on the 20s on the west side where the Westies was. So these hicks up in Rochester say, I'm living in Hell's Kitchen. And then the second one was from the prosecutor. The gangs of the area are too dangerous. And because of the popularity of the priest, it might be dangerous. So the headquarters in Philadelphia, denied. Ah, but now you're going to hear something beyond your comprehension and mine. A day or two after it was all over, I went back to my cell. I prayed. Now I'm saying to myself, why is this happening? But then I got on the telephone. My son was, well, wake, wake, right here. I did a complete funeral service over the phone, with everybody here in this room. I did the opening prayer service. I gave the homily and everything else. He so said, God gives and God takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. I don't know, I said he asked Abraham to sacrifice his son. And then he said, no, I don't want him. Blessed he took mine. However, that's God's will. I don't know why it is to be. I don't think God wills death, but he wants to give him life for some reason. So I'd accept that. The other inmates, they rallied around me and stood with me in great sympathy. I mean, it was an incredible experience. I felt I was being given a special ministry among prisoners. It was very sad at the time, but then it gave a very rich experience. Haven't been, put it like this to you, very few people, priests especially, have had the privilege. But inside the Bellary the Beast.
0: Father Pat was released after serving 44 of the 51 months he was sentenced to. Sam had left America for good. He was back in Belfast. Political pressure from Irish politicians and Irish Americans had led to the Clinton administration agreeing to Sam's transfer back to Northern Ireland where he could serve the remainder of his sentence.
2: What I was told later was there was an awful lot of Irish Americans phoning in because of what I'd went through in the Blacks. And even though they didn't agree what I'd done to Marga, he says he didn't deserve to be here. You know, he should be back in Ireland. As I was told later about a couple of prominent Irish-Americans, you know. So I don't really know. You know, Some people say I was born more horse shop my Some people say I was born with an entire
0: stable. So I don't know. Before he even set foot on the plane, though, the old Belfast had returned, in a way. Sam was to be escorted home by prison guards who had flown over from Northern Ireland. The screws had come over from Long Case. They were going to be the guards,
2: you know. And I had to say this, this would be the first time I'll all fucking praise guards, it'll be the last time. So these guards had come over, one of them was a scumbag and you know he came and he let me know he was here, I heard this big Belfast accent the told him. He had aged, just like me. He was an old man now, like you know what I mean. And he says, Hi oh, Molly, you know me, don't you? I said, I fucking never forget you, you know. He says, Are you gonna give us any trouble? I said, Well, you don't give me any trouble, let me be any trouble. That was it. That was it over, I was the American dream gone.
0: I was over and over again, not allowed to us back in America. I was part of the conditions. Sam arrived back in Belfast, unsure what came next.
2: Bizarre, strange, surreal, all those things, you know. Glad to come home, but sad as missing America, you know. No one would never be allowed back in America, you know.
0: He had been writing in prison. Across 800 handwritten pages, he had started to put his story down on paper.
2: Just sat there and thought, what can I do, you know thought my best memoir meant be able to do something about it on the Brinks. That was the start of my whole career as a writer, you know.
0: And it was in that book titled On the Brinks that Sam would make his confession. It was there that he admitted to the heist and told in detail how he planned it and carried it out. And as Sam tells it, it all began with a conversation with his friend Tom O'Connor when the ex-cop mentioned he was working at a place called the Brinks. I
2: said, what's the Brinks? What's that? So he starts laughing. Oh, it's the most famous uh, money depository in America. Tomorrow, 4th of July, come over and we'll have a few beers. In I'm in, I'd be in charge of it. I'm not allowed to the lads go home. Well, they are guys, they are guards. I let them go home now. I run the place myself. And I think I'm so, he runs the place himself? No, oh, it's just, why, why would it, you think it'd be about 50 guards or something, would you? This place, this big freaking fort. So, cut a long story short, I'm in the brinks. I couldn't believe it. I mean, it was so ridiculous. I walk in the first time I'm in the brinks. They have all these big seats that says this room, and all the doors is laying open, and all the money spilling out, just sitting there. They're too lazy to put the money in because they're thinking, what's the point? We're going to be burning it or whatever. So it's all sitting there. I'm just amazed, you know. I'm thinking, I can't fucking believe this here. You know, it's just like you walked into some sort of a treasure cove, You know, Tom starts telling me so many stories about the security. It's like the security is so fucking ridiculous. They're so cheap, brinks. I mean, I've got all these millions, but they spend like $50 on a lock and all this here. No, no security, no fucking... The, the, the CTV cameras are absolute shit. They brought them in Caddyshack for $10 each and all. But the back of my head, of course, is taking all this information and in. I don't know why. You know, maybe just because I'm amazed or maybe something's saying, oh, maybe I'll use this information later. I don't know. So he tells me about the pizza man guy coming one day and the pizza man walked in because there was only a wee pencil holding the door together. Like, I got he leaned it up. The guy's leaned it up because right, lazy. they didn't want to go out and have to open the door for the pizza man. So I says, well, we pencil, guarding all these millions, but of course, being me, the months and months, I'm thinking of a comic book store. Now I'm making good money in a casino, but the banks keeps coming up. It keeps popping up. I'm sitting in the house, pops up. Can't get it out of my head. So of course, get myself into more trouble. I start thinking this plan. Maybe if I go in there, get a get a break. Maybe get fifty thousand dollars, hundred thousand. Oh God, i hundred thousand dollars. It set me off right away. How do I do it? You know, so I joked one day with Tom. I said, like, Tom, imagine I just came in here and left a I guess. But you knew from his reaction right away, I suddenly said that, you know, I said, guy, yeah, fucking packable fucking reputation. I like, you know, mean, decorated cop and all this here. Now, I sure I laughed it off, but at the same time, I think Tom, I think we was a bit pissed, you know. So I thought, forgot about that for about a year. Then the casino closed. That started causing problems for me. So once again, the, the uh, brinks, I thought, I fucking know how to do all this, you know. I know how to get in there, get out. Nobody hurt. So I thought the only guy who's mad enough, like me, would be Ronnie. This sorry Liverpool, and, and it's sort of a like character, you know, very famous throughout New York, you know. Bit of a boxer, but always cheeky. Cheeky guy, always laughing, always humorous, you know. So I put it to him, you know. Oh, yeah, mate, now you're talking, you know. We'll do it in two seconds. We'll be out there before the ambassadors even know it, you, know, you know. So we had it all planned, you know. And here's me and I, look, like the thing is, we're in and out within minutes. Take a lump. I said, they're just sitting there, big lumps of it. Take two of them, and we'll be laughing the rest of our lives, you know. I said, we'll make it away with $100,000. He's like, oh, brilliant mate, brilliant mate, just right, just me and you, split you know. Great. So it was a winter, it's about 600 miles away, it's a snow, and I'm talking about snow, and a blizzard. So Ronnie has a, a van. I have a van. We both stole both of them in Harlem. He knew Harlem like a back of his leg. He got the vans, we got the vans, you know. It's all going good and the snow's coming around down really heavy. It's a bit nerve-wracking, you know, trying to driving this blizzard, you know. But I'm looking at Ronnie still behind me, and it must be about seven hours on the road. And all of a sudden I'm looking. There's no Ronnie. So I'm thinking maybe he's got lost. Backtrack day, he's days he's gonna come back round around a bit or whatever, you know. So I sort of like pull over and I wait about twenty minutes, half an hour there's no show on it. at the same time I know time has run out, I gotta be on there when Tom's on, cause I know he's gonna be covering fees or our guards and if Tom's not on, the possibilities our guys are gonna shoot somebody, you know what I mean? Like? So, no Ronnie, I couldn't do it on my, my own, too risky, too mad. I went back, two weeks later I found him cause he was always doing different things, moving, you know, he always had shops, didn't pay the rent, then he move on to another place, didn't pay rent, move on, even though he was working at casinos, he was always selling stuff, trousers, shoes, boots he was always doing something you know but a legable rogue nice guy like you know it's just the way he was but uh eventually hunted him down down the uh it's in the it's in the middle of manhattan tribeca so when i fucking see him i just head at him like a missile you know but the but fuck i just told him i said you got this carly bastard so he didn't like it, and like because he always got himself Irish, you know from liverpool he hated that you no know, fact he says he's english like you know what i mean I says, you got this thing, these boss. I saw a new batter and I trust you. He says, no, 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 I was behind you, but I got lost and then I bumped the horn, but you ignored me. Then he tried to shift all the blame to me, you know. And here's me and himself, did I was did like, did I hear a horn bumping, you know, in your town? I wonder. Now I forgot all about you, I mean. That's me and you finished, you know, gone. He says, no, 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 we'll do I said, no, we're done, we're finished. So I was it all put the back of, Never thought about it again for another couple of years. Just started making all my money up. But it kept beating at me, kept beating at me. The uh, Brinks, you know, finally I got the guy, one of the bouncers that we had in the casino. He'd been out in the Iraq war, one of them wars, and I uh, thought I like, could trust talk to him. He was, he, you knew by his talking, he was serious business. I said, look, the only thing is, nobody's going to be killed, we're not anywhere with guns. So he's fucking, you oh, know, what, you crazy? What do you, you know, you can't go into the Brinks with no guns. I said, no, it's not like it, you don't understand, I've been there. This is a fucking ridiculous place. I says there's no fucking security. The doors aren't even locked right, you know? He wasn't too happy. He didn't think, you know, you go in, these guards are going to be armed to teeth. Now, the only guard we were told to be worried about was this guy, I nicknamed him Trigger Hoppy. He was an old guy. You know, he was always talking about, oh, I'd love to see somebody come in here. I'd shoot him first in the eye and then the balls. No, he's all talking about all this bravado crap, you know what I mean? So I just said, look, there's only one guy we're going to have to worry about, but don't worry, I'll take care of him. This old guy, you know what I mean, like? And that was it. Just set in motion. Hard to get into drinks without anybody getting hurt. This time we went up in a wee van.
0: This is your
2: van? Yes. Stupidity. Hand. Convenient. Get this over with so it stops bugging me and I can get on with my life. Get this comic book store going, you know? So this is a wee tiny van. Wee fucking tennis van you could ever imagine in your life. Yeah, I like, we'll take us. This has been worn enough for what we're going to get, you know? So cut a long story short, we got in. And didn't go without a hitch because old Turkah Happy was there. With Tom, Tom's was already tied up. Marco already taken care of him. I already had to explain. I didn't want Marco to know too much about Tom, like I'm a personal friend or anything. I said, this guy's not to be touched on any condition. Tie him up. He let do any feeding. He's not going to die for this fucking money. He's too smart. There's only one stupid idea in here. You call him trick or hobby. And that's if he's in there. Of course, fucking he had to be in there. You know? So we're in there. We're two fucking imitation guns. He's there was a fucking real gun. Of course, I confront him in the corridor. And the minute he sees me, he goes for his gun. I said, don't do it, mate. You're going to die. Your mates are going to die. Because my mate's down there. He's ready to fucking pull the your two friends down there. It's up to you, literally. And his hand's shaking, you know. And you know right away he's going to pull this trigger. And he's going to shoot me in the chest. And I'm going to be fucking dead, you know. That's the way I was doing it. But off the way, he just he just. I think it was just the adrenaline had kept him up. I just coughed. I said, you're alright, you're alright, it's all over now, just take your time, you know. And i laying him down beside the car's bags. Put him down, Then the other one was brought down. And I always remember taking his glasses on, putting them gently beside him, put them down on, you know, putting his head down beside the car's. I it look like five minutes, we're out of here. So we we'll pack of on up, can't believe the money. we are pack it up, we're trying to, trying to calculate my head, God, I don't much money here, do much money's here, you know? It must be a couple of hundred thousand at least, maybe three hundred thousand the two of us are giving two out of high fives, you know, we've done it, like, you know, nobody's hurt, we're going to be out of here in five minutes, packed at the guilds, closed the door, started the car, next thing engine, in black, all the smoke's coming out, it's too much weight on it, it's sweet van, too much weight, all the smoke's coming in, all over, we're waiting for it to do the fire detectors, everything's going to go off here, cops are going to be here in five minutes, we're shitting ourselves out, throw all the money, pack it out again, hundreds of pounds of paper, but because of the adrenaline and the nerves, you don't feel it, we're just lifting, lifting, bit, get the hell out of it. So, so we away half, lift about half and threw it out, got back into the van. Thank God, starts hit the gate, the door, It goes up. Now you see this beautiful snow coming at you. And we we're driving out for what we think is about two hundred, hopefully $300,000 in the back van, you know? And then when we got away, all of a sudden we thought, this is a fucking perfect fucking crime, you know? And we're down on the throughway, heading back down into Manhattan. And next thing, we turn on the radio. And this is only like about 20 minutes. The next thing it says, there's been a, an armed robbery at the fucking brick stable, And I've sent helicopters up in the sky. And the next thing we're hearing, the fucking helicopters, I thought, fuck it, I didn't, I was, that's it over. You know, didn't even start. We're fucking caught. And the helicopters are freaking buzzing all around us and the radios are getting about this big news announcement. You know, guards have being tied up, and the guards have been kidnapped, and all this fucking shit, you know what I mean? Yeah it was out, oh, we were in and out in the space of a few minutes, it was all over, and then I was angry, it was over so quick, it was like an anti-climax. I had this thing planned for years and all of a sudden it's, it's over, and I thought fucking it, you know, where was it, there was no excitement, and that's why I, it was so stupid of me doing it, it was just for the excitement, or the one can I do these things again, can I do these dangerous fucking things, and then there was it over. I just couldn't believe how stupid it went, how ridiculous it went. I never watched enough Colombo. if I had watched enough Columbo I wouldn't have done it but I left the tyre track behind because it's a the winter they've taken in all the snow so there's a perfect print and you're driving out thinking oh yeah I've done it not knowing you've left a big liquor stick all the way out you know, following you but these things yeah hindsight's a great thing you know but you don't think about it parked the car and we're sort of like giggling like two kids you know I mean who, who is this so funny like you know and I'm thinking they are. Could be $300,000 there, you know? And I opened my that car park. It's about four in the morning or something, you know? The next thing we're up, there's about a million. Of, I said, What the fuck's going on here? A million? And there's so much, much of it, it won't stop. It's like it's grown. And I'm saying, What the fuck's happened here, you know? And I'm starting to get nervous. The fancy it turns out there's almost eight million. And I was like shocked. I fucking realised I'd done something really fucking major, bad, like, you know, really stupid. $8 million. You, you know, they're going to come looking for you no matter where the fuck you're going. I mean, that's just thoughts in my head, and I have to get rid of this money as quickly as possible. <laughs> then I have it, I want rid of it, you know. This is when we got back, and what we left behind was almost in thirty-eight. I forget exact amount. it was, 38 or $40 million. Not that you'd want that, but I mean, if we had had the big vans we running, could you imagine us two saving down, we're fucking $20 million each vaning, like, you know. But it was just horrendous, all that money.
0: So what happens next time when you come back to New York?
2: Got back to New York, just parked the van there for anybody to steal. Fucking left it, didn't give a shit. I didn't give a fuck. I was just glad it was over. You know? Just glad it was all over. Did you even want the money? No. I didn't want the money. And I realized it then I says it wasn't about the money. It's never about the money, you know. At the start I thought it was gonna you know, get me an easy way of getting into comic books and all this here. Nah, no, it wasn't it. Then I hated it, I started hating the money. You know?
0: Where did you put it first?
2: Left it, I'm stayed there at all times. In the barn, in the back of the fucking thing. In the garage, in this big public garage, sat there for days. So I'm trying to think, who can I trust that can get rid
0: of this? And then this name came into my head, of this priest. That's how Sam tells it. And he's always insisted that is exactly how it all unfolded. However, to the best of my knowledge... That version of events is not believed by any of the investigators of the Brinks heist or by any others who've taken a keen interest in the story over the years. Sam claims in his book that he and his accomplice, the mysterious Marco, who nobody has ever been able to identify, laid Tom on top of the bags of cash in the back of the minivan. But Tom told the FBI he was taken away in a large van with a vertical sliding back door. And that begs the question, why would Tom offer an alternate version of events to investigators? if he had genuinely been kidnapped. Sam also says he was back on the road leaving Rochester within about 20 minutes of the robbery, but Tom didn't show up at the bar for at least another hour. Meanwhile, we know a collect call was made to Sam's home in Queens from a payphone near that bar where Tom was dropped off, and that was made 90 minutes after the raid. Sam also says it was just himself and Marco who carried out the heist. But the guards on the night, including Tom O'Connor as it happens, Told police there were several people, at least three, in the group that raided the vault. Then there's the money. Sam says Marco took his share, and they dropped off a large chunk of it with a lawyer for safekeeping, and it was then stolen.
2: I left it with a prominent lawyer. That's all I'm
0: really going to say. He kept what was left there was. I was
2: supposed to be split between Marcus and one of Marcus's friends, who he was helping him up out there. Never really got into too much detail in that because I didn't really want to, in case this lawyer got into shit, even know he stole most of the money, you know. Most of his cut, you know. Don't put all your own eggs in one basket, you know. That's why I are looking at. But get something at least. This guy's going to be a great guy, because this guy was
0: a great guy, according to Mark, You know, this guy, well, 100%. Little do we know what a scumbag he was, you know. He's a cookhead, you know. Sam first brought the money to Father Pat several months after the heist, which means Sam must have kept it in New York City, in his car, until then. It was a large pile of money, huge. Father Pat, for one, does not believe that.
1: I don't believe they ever transported it right after the robbery interview. I would search in Rochester from the time of the robbery up until the middle of the year. And then they decide to divvy up what he'd get. And his share would have been the two million.
0: Ultimately, I think it's fair enough to say of Sam's version, a lot of it could be true, but key details seem like they've probably been changed. Sam, of course, insists it is the truth. And if it isn't, it's presumably Sam covering for anyone who did help him. In his telling of the story of the heist, Sam mentioned a man named Ronnie Gibbons. Ronnie was, as Sam tells it, part of the original plan to rob the Brinks. Sam says he gave Father Pat money to give to Ronnie after the heist as a payoff for his silence. Sam believes this was the money the FBI found in Pat's safe at Benita's house. Father Pat denies that this ever happened. Ronnie was a former professional boxer and by all accounts a warm, friendly man. He was not a hardened criminal. In 1995, while Sam and Pat were both in prison, Ronnie travelled to Rochester. He told a friend that if he didn't return, that friend should contact Ronnie's family in Liverpool. Ronnie was going there to get money he felt he was owed for his connection with the original planning of the Brinks heist. He knew, obviously, that there was still £5 unaccounted for and he felt people in Rochester would have it and he might be due some of that. Ronnie was never seen alive again. Friends found his car left in the car park of a restaurant. In the boot of the car was a map and on that map was a circle drawn around the area of Rochester in which Tom O'Connor lived as well as a second circle drawn around the area where a close friend of Tom O'Connor's lived. Ronnie's body was found eventually. It washed up on the shore of Lake Ontario many years later. Ronnie left behind a family including a young daughter. The death of Ronnie Gibbons remains an unsolved case. And just so we're clear, there's never been any suggestion, Sam knew anything about what happened to Ronnie. As for those missing $5 million, the FBI don't hold out much hope of it ever showing up. No. No. So...
1: Hmm. Oh, well. Oh, well. All I would believe would have come down would have been Sammy Sher. The rest would have been whomever was his uh, associates up there. Well, calculating from the point of view of the criminological uh, scheme... Well, I would say four people directly involved. I would say there had to be a lot of collaborators of a different level. Before four people could do a lot. If one guy said a place to hide something, they don't have to involve an awful lot of other people. It wouldn't seem to be too hard to get rid of money, and especially so close to Canada, the Canadian border. According to them, if all the money moved in a minivan, all oh, they would need a small storage unit of some kind. So you could have a trailer hidden anywhere. And then there's so much vast territory, land and a lot of, you know, farms and space up around that part of the country. I don't know. I wouldn't believe what Sam would say. No, really. He's got no credibility up to now. So, uh, and I don't know anybody left that would be able to say anything. But I can't tell you sure of one thing: not one dollar, not a nickel of the money came into this house, approved, helped this house in any way, or helped anyone associated with me. Absolutely nothing.
0: The five million
1: that was never found.
0: Mm-hmm. Exactly.
2: Never found. Where do you think that is? Have no clue. Booker. My God, whoever finds it does brings happiness to him. But I never want to look at it again in my life. You know. You definitely don't. Having a clue. Do you think i will be sitting in Belfast? If it millions? You know? Everybody thinks it, you know? Oh, yeah, yeah, we know you're waiting, you're waiting, it cools off. The bag up my cut, you know? That's it. But uh, it's a big question where's the money, you know? Oh, <sighs> you don't realise it until you see it. Then you start to hate it.
0: Tom O'Connor died in 2013, and with him, perhaps, the secrets of all that's left unknown. The Brink's heist remains, in a lot of respects, unsolved. It's a story of claim and counterclaim. It's a tale with several authors. There's no neat ending here. When Sam Miller went into prison as a teenage boy, he was transformed. Like one of his comic book heroes or villains, mutated by cruel twists of fate, he emerged a very dangerous man. Five years of the nightmare of the blanket protest changed him again. Sending him further down that dark road. Sam walked out of prison weighed down by a darkness he could never fully explain to those who hadn't lived it. And then there was an escape to America and a dream. The first dream.
2: I know I fucked it all up at the end, but you know, that day when I first went to America I just knew was something special going on here. And I didn't understand it till after a while I thought about it and realised it's fucking freedom. I'd imagined like I'd try to think what it would be like to live in America and all that, you know, but you knew it was never going to happen. You knew you were going to die in this fucking prison. You knew you were never going to see light again. Like, I always wondered what the hell I was going to how going to survive the next day, you know? So, where did I go from there? To America. God, I was only, like, last week I was naked, getting the crap kicked out of me by screws. Here I am in America, surrounded by my friends, the Fantasy Four, Spider-Man, Batman, Superman, you know? It, it was just a dream come true. That was... Happiness, like you know, I man, that was you. This is what you dreamed as a wee lad from you were eight years of age. One day, and all of a sudden, now you are. Your dreams come true. How can you? You know, it's incredible. How the fuck did that happen? Like, just mad. You know, it's just yeah. been one mad journey.
0: Even though there is no full stop to the mystery of the Brinks heist, there is a sense of completion to this story. Sam's On the Brinks was the start of a very successful career as a writer. He's written several critically acclaimed novels and he's won awards across Europe for his work. He lives in Belfast again, now creating his own heroes and villains drawn into incredible adventures. As for Father Pat, he's still in Benita's house. He's still walking the streets of the old neighbourhood.
1: He's still working. I very like, much like said. look up here. Perhaps the best years of my life are gone. I wouldn't want them back. Not with the fire in me now. So I find that. And then I remember what, what Lincoln said. Abraham Lincoln. It's not the years in your life to count. It's the life in your years. No regrets. But in bluntly, I would do it all over again. The Lord is with me all the way.
0: Everything I think so. I've asked all the questions
2: I have, but is there anything I didn't ask or anything
0: you want to add? No, not really. No, I suppose just find a reflection and you
2: look back on it. Yeah, you know, life's about making mistakes and learning from them, you know. And sometimes you don't learn, sometimes you have to get hurt a couple of times to to learn. You know, I have learned, you know, as I say, I'm at my hobbies now. This is why you're meant. This is after these different journeys you've had. You've finally come to the, your journey, your final journey. And it's been a good journey. It's a good journey that you're having, you know. For once in my life, I've just settled into what I have and being appreciative of what I have, you know. And why have I been given this another chance? Why have I been given another chance? I've got a great life now as a writer. I'm happy now, my family. I'm not saying I deserve it, but it came. And I took it, you know.
0: Thank you to all of the people who spoke to me for this series, most notably, of course, Father Pat and Sam Miller. To read Sam's life story in a lot more detail, you can get his memoir called On the Brinks. It is, and I say this without exaggeration, a fascinating, beautifully written book. Thanks also to Gary Craig. His book On the Brinks Heist is called Seven Million, and it and Gary himself were a huge help to me making this. Unusual Suspects was produced and presented by me, Owen Brennan. Thanks to Lachlan Hart for his brilliant work on sound design and to Siobhan Walsh who was production assistant. Unusual Suspects is a Go Loud original.